During the Vietnam War, hundreds of American prisoners of war faced years of brutal conditions and horrific torture at the hands of North Vietnamese guards and interrogators who grilled them for military intelligence and propaganda. Determined to maintain their code of conduct, the POWs developed a powerful underground resistance. To quash it, their captors singled out its 11 leaders and banished them to an isolated jail that would become known as Alcatraz. None would leave its solitary cells and interrogation rooms unscathed, and one would never return. When the survivors of Alcatraz finally came home, one veteran would go on to receive the Medal of Honor, another would become a U.S. Senator, and a third still serves in the Congress. A powerful story of survival and triumph, today's speaker's new book, Defiant, will inspire anyone wondering how courage, faith, and brotherhood can endure even in the darkest of situations. Alvin Townley graduated from Washington and Lee University and has worked in the U.S. House of Representatives, helped manage global strategy for an international consulting firm, has spoken to audiences across North America, and even coached track and field. To write his first book, he sold his house and quit his job and began an odyssey that continues today as he tells America's great stories. Through the process of researching his books, his travels have taken him around the world, from the halls of Congress to the infamous Hanoi Hilton, from African villages to Australia's Great Barrier Reef, and from Rocky Mountain peaks to five aircraft carriers in three oceans. His books include Legacy of Honor, The Values and Influences of America's Eagle Scouts, Spirit of Adventure, Eagle Scouts and the Making of America's Future, Fly Navy, Discovering the Extraordinary People and Enduring Spirit of Naval Aviation, and Defiant, the POWs who endured Vietnam's most infamous prison, the women who fought for them, and the one who never returned. So please join me in a warm VHS welcome for Alvin Townley. And, and thank you, everybody. It's always great to be back in Virginia, where I was lucky enough to uh, spend four years as a student at Washington and Lee, and two more years as a uh, development officer. One of the reasons I was really lucky to go there was because I went there a couple years ago because I don't know if I'd have a chance at getting in today because it, it has gotten tough and expensive. But I was one of the few people that was really lucky to go to a, a school that was basically a, a church to two of my heroes, two of the people that I always thought were leaders. And, of course, you know, at Washington and Lee, we um, consider ourselves the University of Virginia. Is anyone else in here from Washington and Lee? Any alums? All right. Thank you. Back in the back. We'll be talking to the alumni office about that. At Washington and Lee, though, you know, we had two great patron saints, George Washington and Robert E. Lee. So when I was coming along, a hero and a leader to me looked like a man with white hair with a sword. You know, these guys were distinguished, they were very elegant, they were both aristocrats, 
They had staffs that fed them wonderful dinners every night, even on the campaigns. They slept in tents with aides. They both had silver horses. These were heroes. These were leaders. These are the type of people that I always wanted to be and that I always imagined as the epitome of an American military leader. And this was leadership. This was leadership leading a troop of men across a river. That's what leaders look like. And so for a long time, those are my heroes. But after the experience of writing Defiant, today, my heroes wear pajamas and flip-flops. And I want to tell you this story. It all kind of started in Wallow Prison. This is in downtown Hanoi. This is basically like having a penitentiary right next to the Marriott at the convention center. And the French built this prison in the late 1800s to house colonial captives. It was a bad, bad place. And when American POWs started arriving in 1965, they said you'd walk in there and you could just hear the screams and the misery of 70 years of colonial justice. It was a nasty, dirty, terrible place. And by the end of the Vietnam War, there were almost 500 American prisoners here in this prison. And let me just kind of give you an idea. And so usually, I start off by having you picture yourself being one of these POWs, but for several reasons, including that one of the POW's sons and uh, wives is here today, and they've heard this once or twice, I thought I would change it up a little bit and have everybody picture yourselves as one of these guys. Now, the North Vietnamese went to great lengths to make sure the Americans never knew their real names. The truth is, the Americans couldn't have pronounced their real names if they'd known them. So Major Vo Win Bai was nicknamed Cat, and Colonel Wan Yi was nicknamed Rabbit. So imagine you're one of these guys. Now, Rabbit, this picture was taken uh, when he was probably in his uh, mid to late 30s, and when the American POW started arriving in 1965, he was probably in his mid to late 20s. Cat was his boss. Cat was on the general staff, so he had a lot of responsibility, and the, the Vietnamese Politburo and the Defense Ministry had charged Cat with taking care of the American prisoners and making sure they behaved, making sure he got information out of them, and propaganda. So imagine you're these guys, and all of a sudden, American pilots start falling out of the sky. And so instead of fighting the war somewhere, you're stuck in Hanoi, but you are responsible for taking care of these guys, putting them somewhere, and getting all this intelligence from them. You've never really done this before, but um, you're going you're to try. But you also don't think it's going to really be that long because even you have to admit that you as North Vietnam are fighting the most powerful military in the world, and surely this conflict isn't going to last this long. So that's 1965. POWs start arriving. Bob Shoemaker, who you'll hear about later, arrives on February the, February the 11th. 
Ron Storrs arrives in April, Jeremiah Denton arrives in July, and they keep coming. And they keep coming in 1966, and the war keeps going on. They're still coming in 1967. The war is still going on. 1968. 1969. The Americans are withdrawing troops now from South Vietnam. And so, you know, you've been telling these POWs since the beginning that they're never going home, right? You're trying to get in their head and make them feel really despondent. But now, both you and the POWs are kind of wondering, well, maybe they won't go home. 1970. Almost all of the American troops are gone by now. Everybody's wondering, are the POWs really going to come home? They don't come home until 1973, after, after eight years of captivity. It was an incredibly excruciating ordeal, and the POWs only had each other. And the North Vietnamese, so you as cat or rabbit, knew that controlling the POWs relied on keeping them separate keeping them isolated from one another. And the American POWs knew that to survive this ordeal, however long it was going to be, they were going to have to communicate. They were going to have to encourage one another to keep their hopes up and to stay together. So I know any of you who know Paul Galani have heard this story, have heard about the TAP code. So real early on, Bob Shoemaker, who's, uh, who you'll hear a little more about later, and several other POWs, got together and were trying to figure out how they could communicate because these four guys were together in a room and they knew they wouldn't be there together very long. They knew the Vietnamese would split them up as soon as they could. So they got down and tried to figure out how they could communicate. They figured they needed some system to tap or cough or make some noises and they thought about Morse code, but everybody knows Morse code and it's kind of tough to tap longs and shorts. So they came up with this tap code. And the way they would communicate it, the way they developed it rather, was they took the 26 letters of the alphabet and uh, those, those of you that did not go to VMI will know that they're 26 letters. <laughs> and, and so they, they took out the letter K, and they, so they, you would use C for K, so now they're 25 letters. And you would communicate a letter by tapping first the letter's row, and second, it's column. So B is first row, second column. G is second row, second column. And these guys made the Hanoi Hilton sound like a den of woodpeckers because they would just, they had, they had nothing else to do. And you know, so I would always ask them, you know, how did you spend this much time tapping? And what did I mean? It took so long to communicate the words. And they say, well, Alvin, there's nothing else to do. And they also pioneered abbreviated text messaging. You know, I also often like to think that my generation came up with shortened text messages. But these POWs were using GN for good night and GM for good morning long before anyone ever even thought of having me. So it was an ingenious way to communicate, and they were able to do that throughout their, uh, their whole time there. They would tap in code. They would cough in code. They would tie knots in code. They would sweep in code. It was their currency. It was the one way they were going to get each other through this. And one of the things they communicated, the main thing they communicated was this, and they communicated about this. They communicated how they were going to follow the U.S. military's code of conduct in this completely bizarre, completely unexpected situation. Because in training, they learned this code of conduct. They learned this is how they were supposed to behave if they were captured and taken as a prisoner of war. But North Vietnam never acknowledged 
that Americans were prisoners of war. Truth be told, the Johnson administration, for some very intricate legal reasons, also didn't always acknowledge that the Americans were prisoners of war. So it was a very interesting situation where the Geneva Convention didn't quite apply, so the Americans had to figure out what their honor looked like in this situation. And when they were shot down, you know, they lost their airplane. They lost their rank. They lost their flight suit. They lost all the communication they had with home. They lost the possibility of going back to the wardroom for a nice dinner that night. All these guys had left was their name and their honor, and they were not going to give up their honor. So they tried to figure out what it would look like to uphold this code of conduct. And they came up with an ingenious and uh, very simple but comprehensive code, and they called it Back Us. So they took these things. No, you, can, you can accept no special favors. You should give only your name, rank, service number, and date of birth. You can make no disloyal or harmful statements. You should never forget you're an American fighting man, and you should always trust in America and God. So they took all this, kind of simplified it in a code to fit their unique situation. And they called it BACUS. It was an acronym. B stood for bow. You never bow in front of your captors in public. Never let a camera see you bow. A stood for air. Stay off the air. Don't make any statements unless they really, really beat you up for it. C, crimes. The North Vietnamese always told the American POWs they were not POWs, they were not military men, they were criminals. That's all they heard. They didn't even call them prisoners. They always called them criminals. And Admiral Stockdale and Admiral Denton, who were the two of the key leaders, always wanted the men to remember they were soldiers first. They were not criminals. And they shouldn't confess to any crimes because they're always worried about getting brought up on war crimes charges in front of a tribunal. K is kiss. So nobody should kiss up and nobody should kiss these guys goodbye whenever the Americans finally went home. And finally, U.S., back us. U.S. stood for unity over self because these guys knew the only way they were going to get through this was together as a unit. And so as I began learning this, that's when I began to see what amazing leaders we had there in a POW camp, and, and none more more impressive than Admiral Jim Stockdale and Admiral Jeremiah Denton. So let's, let's pretend for a second that you are, in fact, Commander Jeremiah Denton. It's July the 16th, 1965. You're about three days away from receiving command of a fighter squadron. You're 100 miles off the coast of North Vietnam on the USS Independence, which is about uh, 1,100 feet long, one of the largest warships in the world, and you are invincible. You know, and you're so invincible that you think you can take a jet and fly it off a boat, go bomb a target, return unscathed, and land that plane back on a boat at night. You think you can control what's more or less uncontrollable. You think you can control this jet engine that's strapped onto your back. And all of a sudden, in the course of about five seconds, you go from being a confident, cocky, accomplished Annapolis graduate naval aviator to being a dirty, wet, injured, naked prisoner. Just like that. Just like that. 
So for a while, the POWs got along more or less with the captors. They, they were yelled at. They were isolated. They were getting kind of two bowls of soup a day. They, get, they might get smacked around when they wouldn't answer the questions. But late 1965, something happened. Cat, remember Cat, Cat received some orders to get more information, more intelligence out of these POWs. And he got some license to get a little rougher with, with him if he needed to. So he and Rabbit started, um, started working with these guys, trying to get some more information out of them. And what, what would happen was torture. And so I want everybody to scoot up in your chair if you can. Scoot up in your chair a little bit. And stick your legs out in front of you, if you can. Now, now you're all imagining that you're Jeremiah Denton right now. You're a cocky, confident, accomplished naval aviator. And your hands are behind your back. So put your hands behind your back if you can. And imagine your hands are not just handcuffed, but they're manacled. So they're manacles holding your wrist together. And a rabbit is there, and he's yelling at you. He says, Commander Denton, sign this confession. Sign this confession saying that you're a war criminal. Sign this confession saying your country is wrong. Your country should not be here. You're not going to sign that because all you have left is your honor. You're not going to give that up without a fight. So you say no. The rabbit says, Commander Denton, just sign the confession. I'm probably not going to even show it to anybody. No one's ever going to know. It won't matter. No one will know. Just sign it. But you'll know. And so you say no. So Rabbit says, all right. So he brings in this guy named Pig Eye. Pig Eye starts roping up your arms. Takes a rope, starts pulling your arms closer and closer together. So those of you with your arms behind your back, are anybody's elbows touching? No, right? It's tough. Pig Eye can make you do it. And you are in so much pain that you really think about confessing. You think about signing that confession. But you're going to hold out because you're just not going to give up. Rabbits are yelling at you, begging you to sign that confession. You say no. So finally, Pig Eye comes behind you, and he takes your arms, and he pushes them over your head as he drives your nose down to your knees. And you've never felt pain like this, and you break. You sign that confession. You say you're a criminal. You say America is wrong, and you go crawling back to your cell, absolutely broken, thinking you're the only American in all of Hanoi that couldn't hold out. You think you were the one guy that didn't live up to the standard, the one guy who lost his honor. You're laying on your cell. Your cell is pretty small, and it's dirty. You're on a bamboo mat. There are rats, and there are roaches crawling all around you. You're crying. And you don't even want to go home anymore because you think you're going to be ashamed to come home and face your family because you couldn't toe the line. Then all of a sudden, you hear. GBU. Another POW is on the other side of your wall tapping GBU to you. And GBU meant a lot more than God bless you. It meant I know what you've been through. It meant I've been there too. It meant keep the faith. We are all going to get through this and we're going to go home together. And so the POWs, like boxers, you know, getting up off, of, off, a, uh, off the canvas, they kept coming back 
again and again, taking that torture again and again, towing the line as long as they could and encouraging each other and convincing each other that one day they would get home. You know, they call it, Jim Collins, a great business writer, calls this the Stockdale Paradox. And Admiral Stockdale and Admiral Denton knew that they just had to accept the brutal reality of their current situation. It was bad. And it was going to be bad for a long time. But they never lost faith that one day they were going to come home. But there's a group of POWs that caused a lot of trouble. There's a group of POWs who cat and rabbit just couldn't make behave. And not only were they misbehaving, they were encouraging and ordering everyone else in the entire Hanoi Hilton to misbehave and not cooperate. So finally, they were trying to figure out what to do with these 11 POWs. And they kicked them out of the Hanoi Hilton. Can you imagine how bad you have to be to get kicked out of a POW camp? First to go was this guy, future Senator Jeremiah Denton. Jim Stockdale, Medal of Honor recipient. I give a whole other presentation about Admiral Stockdale. Lieutenant Commander Bob Shoemaker, probably the smartest American in Hanoi, probably the smartest American I still know. Bob still flies his own airplane at 81 years old. My mom gets a little nervous when I go flying with him but I always have a great time. George McKnight, George Coker. George Coker was 23 years old. And he had just turned 23 a month before when he got shot down. Can you imagine being shot down 7,000 miles away from home when you're 23 years old? I want you to read the book, Defiant, for a whole lot of reasons. One of the reasons is to read the story of the escape that these two guys made. And one of them, George McKnight, was a former boxing champion. George Coker was a former state wrestling champion from New, from New Jersey. These two were the most caustic combination of POWs ever assembled in any war, anywhere. And for the life of me, once they made their escape, I can't figure out why North Vietnam even wanted them back. I would have, I would have let them go. Harry Jenkins and Howie Rutledge. These guys were never more than 30 feet apart for over seven years. They never saw each other for four years. The first four years, they never saw each other, but they were 30 feet apart, and they'd always communicated. Jim Mulligan and Sam Johnson. Sam Johnson uh, today is a co congressman from Texas. Jim Mulligan lives down the street in Virginia Beach today. Jim Mulligan and Sam Johnson now share six grandchildren who are collectively called the POW grandkids. Captain Ron Stores and Lieutenant Commander Nels Tanner. One of the Alcatraz 11 didn't come back. And when you read about Ron Stores' story, I think you'll understand what patriotism can look like in the absolute darkest of circumstances. Because Ron is a hero. He inspired the other men. And it's a shame that he didn't come home. But what his not returning shows you is how awful the circumstances were and what kind of effort these guys had to put forth 
on a daily, hourly, minute-by-minute basis to survive. Nels Tanner has one of my favorite stories um, because he was getting drilled for propaganda, getting drilled to sign a confession. So he eventually submitted, as everybody eventually did, and he wrote his confession, and he talked about his um, squadron commander, some of his squadron mates, and the name he used for his squadron commander was Clark Kent. (laughs) And Nels, Nels thought it was a lot more funny than the North Vietnamese did. And when they found out about that, they sent Nels, along with these 10 other guys, to this little hole of a prison called Alcatraz. Alcatraz. And when they showed up in Alcatraz, because you know, they knew why they got kicked out. When they were on the truck leaving the Hanoi Hilton, they were coughing and tapping and you know, hitting each other with their fingers to try and figure out who was on the bus. And they figured out pretty quick it was the worst troublemakers. Now, I should tell you, and any of the Alcatraz POWs would tell you, there were a lot of troublemakers and a lot of leaders in the Hanoi Hilton. And certainly uh, Richmond's Paul Galani was one of them. But these 11, for whatever reason, got singled out. And as they were driving to to Alcatraz, they knew it was going to be bad. They knew they weren't going anywhere good. And when they got there, they got thrown in these these cells that I showed you. And there's a burning light, kind of a dimly burning light on in the cell. And that's the first look that that they got for their home for the next two years. Their home... They're filming this, so they're going to be mad at me that I'm leaving my, leaving my camera angle here. But their home was four feet wide, and it was nine feet tall. There were no windows, one door. They were in there for 23 hours, and about 45 minutes per day. You know, so at first they thought, well, this is going to be really bad. They're really going to work us over now. They're going to take us out. They're going to beat us. They're going to get propaganda. They're going to get intelligence from us. This is going to be awful. It was awful, but for a different reason. The North Vietnamese just left them there for 23 hours and 45 minutes a day with nothing to do. And they quickly understood how awful boredom is. And so I'll come back to that in a second. I'll tell you a little side story. So I had my buddy Josh. Josh Hall, he's a uh, builder in Atlanta. And I got him to build me a replica Alcatraz POW cell. So four by nine in my garage. I was really glad none of the neighbors called the police. I, I, was, I, was, I was a little nervous about that. Particularly after he kidnapped me one night, shoved me in there, and locked it. And then he and my, my soon-to-be fiancé were bringing me um, one bowl of oatmeal per day. And they 
kind of put it through this little feeding hole. And so I guess maybe the second night, I was getting a little chilly, you know, and I was like, I really, I need to get out of here. I need to get another blanket. I need just to you know, watch TV for a second or something because I was pretty bored by this point. And I was smart enough, I knew Josh was going to put me in that cell at some point, so I was smart enough to take a, a key to the padlock and put it in there soon after Josh finished the cell. I kind of I hit it. So, I, you know, nobody was there. It was, you know, 2 a.m. I was cold. I couldn't sleep. I was, I was sitting there, had a blanket over my head, kind of running in place, just trying to keep warm and just not go, not go crazy. So I got the key, and I opened the feeding hole and kind of reached my arm out over to where the padlock was, and son of a gun, Josh had changed the lock. <laughs> so I don't know what that says about me, that he thought he had to do it. But anyways, I stayed in that cell, and it was awful. And I was in there for less than a week. You know, I was trying to find a crack so I could watch shadows move outside. And the most exciting part of the day was when that food would come through the door. I was so excited to see that food. And even though Suzanne and Josh wouldn't talk to me, I'd at least get to see him, see him for a second and have some contact. So these guys in Alcatraz were in the same situation just for two years, though. And, you know, they, they came up with so many amazing ways to keep themselves occupied. They tapped all day, and when they were tired of tapping, when their knuckles were bloody, they started withdrawing into their own minds. They would go through their high school yearbooks and picture every single person, every single name. They built houses. The house Bob Shoemaker lives in that I was in um, back in July, we had a POW slumber party. There were, there were four of us in the house together. It was a great time. And uh, he built that house in his mind, in his cell in Hanoi. Not just some vague outlines. He knew how many bricks. He knew how many board feet of lumber. He knew how many feet of piping. Because all he could do is just sit there and try and think about something to keep himself occupied and make the time go a little faster. And it actually got to the point, and I got to this point too, where they actually wanted somebody to come in even if they were going to beat them up. They just wanted some human contact. So they actually started missing pig eye, rabbit, and cat. But eventually, in early 1969, they kind of got their wish, and the Blue Book Purge of 1969 began, and I'll let you read the book to hear more about that. It's entirely possible that those POWs could have stayed in those cells and in Hanoi forever, if it had not been for their wives. From this Alcatraz 11 group, three of the leading wives were Sybil Stockdale, Jane Denton, and Louise Mulligan. And in, the, in the military community, often ranks of the husbands transfer to ranks of the spouses. So, so these were military women who had been in the service for a long time. And so I want you to imagine for a second that you're Jane Denton, who is as southern a lady as has ever been born, and you get a knock at the door one day. It's a man in uniform, along with his wife and a priest. You've been in the Navy for almost 20 years, so you know what's going on. And you learn your husband's missing in action. And the government tells you they're not sure if he's dead or alive, they're going to try and find out, but you need to be quiet. Anything you say might jeopardize your husband. It might get the North Vietnamese upset if we're complaining about this, and it might disrupt peace negotiations in Paris. So 
you, Jane Denton, need to be quiet, and we, the government, are going to take care of it. But remember, this is 1965, and so there was a lot of trust in the government at this point. And you've been a military spouse for almost 20 years, so you trusted the government to take care of this and get your husband home safely. After a while, through some ingenious communication, just one more reason to read the book. Incredible communication, covert. It was out of something out of James Bond. You learned the government's lying to you. Your husband's not being well-treated. They're making no progress to get towards getting him home. And if he's ever going to come home, you're going to have to bring him home. So these women found each other across the country. And Sybil Stockdale was in um, San Diego, California. Louise and Jane were here in Tidewater. And Phyllis Galani was here in Richmond. And together, they started one of the most extraordinary women's movements in American history. And before I started writing this book, I had no idea that this symbol is a symbol of an amazing movement of women and family. And almost nobody understands that. And this is Richmond, so I'm expecting a lot of hands. How many people wore one of these? All right, so over 5 million POW MIA bracelets were minted between 1968 and 1973. People as diverse as Richard Nixon and Cher wore these bracelets. And what these extraordinary women did was bring together a very divided America. There had never been another war, aside from the war between the states, that split America like the Vietnam War did. So these women were in the odd situation of trying to bring a divided country together, and they found the one issue, the one common cause that could do it, and that was the safe return of our servicemen, and in particular, our POWs. And so for the first time, America drew a distinction between a political war and the men and women who were fighting it. And because of their efforts, in 1973, the American POWs finally came home. And this is, uh, this is uh, Jim Mulligan and Sam Johnson, Congressman Sam Johnson, right here. This is the third plane load of prisoners to leave on February the 12th. These guys had no idea what was in store for them when they got home. But all of America was excited. And for the first time, America welcomed home men returning from Vietnam. Jeremiah Dent was one of the first men, he was the first man, actually, off the plane. And he gave one of the most ringing and poignant statements, I think, that's ever been, uh, ever been coined in American military history. And he was at Clark Air Base in the Philippines. He'd been free for about two and a half hours, maybe three hours. And he was a senior officer on the first plane. They landed at Clark, and he walked down the steps, and there's a microphone waiting for him. He said three simple sentences. He said, we are honored to have served our country under difficult circumstances. We are profoundly grateful to our commander-in-chief and to our nation for this day. And his voice broke a little bit, and then he said, God bless America. And all of America was excited. All of America came together. All of America celebrated this homecoming. And the POWs were so gracious. They hadn't expected it. And look, Admiral Denton thanked us. He thanked the American people for bringing him home. What a servant's heart. 
But what they realized was that a lot of men coming back from Vietnam didn't get that reception. And so when I go speak, when I, the POWs speak with me, we always want to stress that Vietnam veterans are welcomed home. So raise your hand if you did serve in Vietnam and let us welcome you home. Thank you. POWs and, and those of you that raised your hand went and fought a tough war. It was a political war. It was a complicated war. And regardless of what your feelings were about the war, you went, you did your duty, and you fought. And so for my generation, that is such an example. And so it's up to us. I don't know what our challenge is going to be next, but I hope that we can face it with the same courage and the same sense of service that you faced Vietnam. So thank you for, for your service in that. You know, it's, it's so special to see a group of men and women come through an experience like this and remain together. And one of the most extraordinary things is that nine of these Alcatraz, these defiant POWs, were married. All their marriages stayed together, and they remain friends to this day. And it's very rare that your heroes become your friends. And so on a real personal note for me, that's happened. And even, even more than that, and there's several um, Alcatraz POW family members here in the audience today. And I honestly feel like my, my heroes have become my friends and they've become my family. And, and this family of, of people, this is at Admiral Denton's funeral at Arlington Cemetery in July. This family of people has embraced me so warmly and, you know, part of, part of my mission is to tell their story because if I'm at dinner with them or I'm out somewhere with them, people walk by and they have no idea who this white-haired gentleman is. They have no idea that these are the longest-serving servicemen in American history. Their tour, their tour of duty lasted longer than almost any other tour of duty in American military history. And their wives went through an equally tough tour here back at home. And so many times, people don't know it. So I hope that, that you'll share the story of the POWs. I hope you'll share the story of our Vietnam veterans with other people because it's so important that we don't forget. And it's such an inspiration. But I think, you know, even on a more personal level, reading these stories helps put life in perspective a little bit. And I think uh, Paul Galani put it best when he said, you know, there's never such thing as a bad day when there's a doorknob on the inside of your door. So guys, Richmond, you all have been wonderful to me. Thank you for having me, and uh, I look forward to coming back soon. Thank you. That was entirely uncalled for, but, but thank you anyway. Um, I know that uh, we're going to have some time for some questions.
and Graham has a microphone and he already has his first customer. And you spoke of their uh, shared brotherhood. What were the other, other qualities that you discerned that they shared that may have set them apart from others? So their distinguishing characteristic, um, I think, was their competitiveness. These guys were competitors. They were aviators, uh, you know, which um, they certainly thought they were at the, at the top of their profession, and they were not going to let the North Vietnamese win. So I, I think um, in, a, in a kind of a raw sense, they were competitors, and I think that set them apart. They were just not going to lose. Uh, what can you tell us about Colonel Bud Day? Uh, the airport, uh, the city, uh, hometown in Iowa has, is named after him. So um, Bud Day, I never got to meet Colonel Day in person. Two weeks before he passed away last summer, he, read, he finished reading Defiant. And on the back cover, there's a wonderful quote from him uh, that, that we kind of extracted from a much larger quote. And it was, uh, that was one of the greatest honors I had writing the book was getting the quote from somebody like Bud Day. So he was a great man. There's a, there's a wonderful story. Uh, there was a, an, um, an event that you'll read about in Defiant called the Christmas Riot of 1971. And basically the POWs wanted to have a worship service. The North Vietnamese didn't want them to, and they had one anyway. So the North Vietnamese came in with, with bayonets, they busted the service up, they hauled away uh, three of the, the Alcatraz guys and threw them back in solitary confinement. And as they were going, as they were getting marched away, Bud Day, who was a Medal of Honor recipient for um, his escape attempt before he was captured, he pulls himself up on some bars. This is when they were in a big kind of a communal camp together, if you remember the, the bigger camp I showed you uh, from the overhead shot. Uh, Bud Day pulls himself up to these, these bars and starts singing the Star Spangled Banner. And pretty soon, 400 American prisoners in the middle of downtown Hanoi are singing the Star Spangled Banner. And that was one of the most amazing, amazing moments in the book, and I hope it'll be one of the most amazing mom uh, moments in the movie, too. I know your focus is on these, the heroes that you've written about in Defiant and at Hanoi Hilton, but in your research, by any chance did you come across uh, any great, uh, what are the numbers of uh, soldiers that did get, uh, were prisoners of the Vietnamese? How many were there, do you think? So there were somewhere between returning POWs, there were somewhere, depending on kind of what number you use, around 600 uh -huh. in, in the North and the South. Uh -huh. There were some number of people that were captured, that we know that were captured, that did not make it into the prison system. Uh, so, you know, I think, I think that it's safe to assume they just, they died on the way to Hanoi somehow. Uh, but, so there were, there were a lot of, a lot of Americans taken prisoner. And there, and there were a lot that sadly uh, never, you know, were able to return. When they got shot down, um, they just never survived the crash. I was an infantry officer in Vietnam in 1968 and spent a year in the field. And of course, we always had a fear of death. You know, all of us did. But my wife can attest that my biggest fear was being taken prisoner and being put in a tiger cage or, you know, just be like that for several years. So what you've just told us reinforces that 100%. <laughs> well, well on, the, on the flip side, 
I'll tell you, a lot of the POW's greatest fear was would have been get, getting sent down to the south and, and being out in the patrol and uh, in the jungle. So, you know, I think you always, uh, you know, you always uh, respect what the other guy does, and they certainly respected, you know, you guys being out there in the south doing the work you did. And if you were there in '68, that was Tet, right? So that 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 was a quite a New Year's party that year. So th thank you, thank you for that. And, you know, and one other thing I want to say about the other POWs, you know, every POW has you know an, an amazing story, and the whole POW community has been so supportive of me really in this whole effort because they understand that this is really their story. And the Alcatraz Eleven just happened to be the Band of Brothers story, and I think it really captures in a unique way the way Americans really got through this experience. They really got through this experience together. And that's, that's what was unique about this group. And this is the one defined group that really came out of that experience and stayed together as a group. So that's, you know, that's the reason we use that as the hook. But, you know, Paul has, uh, has been with me at events and, and other POWs. And, you know, I'm always real careful to make sure that all the POWs and everyone that hears me speak understands that, you know, I'm, I'm up here speaking for every man who was a prisoner uh, over in North Vietnam. You mentioned a movie? I did. No one caught that. I, th I, thought, I thought I was going to get a laugh. I must have spoken too quickly. You know, it must be the, the northerner in me because uh, when I went to, I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, born and raised. I went to Washington and Lee and was there for um, three months, came home for Thanksgiving, and my mom said, Alvin, that Yankee school took away your accent. Um, but uh, no, we are, uh, so I guess I'm talking a little faster uh, with my New York accent. Uh, we're actually working on the screenplay right now, and we have a, uh, a producer that's working with us out in L.A., and hopefully, hopefully in uh, late November, we're going to go out there and spend a little bit of time and, and try and see what we can get. I think that we're going to present this as a miniseries for a whole number of reasons, but We'll see how it works, and you know, certainly if there's a studio and producer that want to make it a regular TV series or want to make it a feature film, we're happy to work with them. But e either way, I think that I think uh, this will be an extraordinary story to bring to film because I, I do want everyone in America to hear this story. I think you know it's it's on hardback, it's uh, it's on eBooks, it's on audio. I think having a visual representation of it would also really uh, really help get the message across. Hi, neighbors. Um, I'm Mike Denton, one of Jerry Denton's many kids, <laughs> seven to be exact. Um, uh, first of all, we, th we think this is a definitive history of the experience. Alvin has done an amazing job. He is he called me with unbelievably detailed questions. How many times might your mother have been able to say the rosary on the way home from mass after she first heard your father was imprisoned? Those kind of questions. He's, and you have to, you know, 40 years after or whatever it is, um, you know, it's hard. The stories shift quite a bit. So his job was... Um, it's okay. We've got a door knob on the inside. Uh, um, uh, so getting it straight, sorting it out, 
with respect, having respect for everybody involved is a tough thing to do. He's done an amazing job. Uh, just a quick comment on the leadership mix question. I think that there was a unique, other than their toughness, and we've talked a lot about this, Alvin and I, it was his, his asking us the question forced my siblings to really think about why was dad like that? Why was he so competitive? And Jim Stockdale, in a different way, was. I would say that uh, Robbie Reisner wasn't uh, mentioned here, but the, the sort of the triumphant that, that ran things was my dad, uh, Adam Stockdale, and, and Robbie Reisner. And dad and, and Reisner were very faithful people. They were all great officers, but dad and Reisner had an amazing uh, amount of faith that drove them every day before and after, more so after, to be honest. Um, and, and Admiral Stockdale was a, was a student of stoicism and, and, and the fact that the Korean War prisoners had had trouble and so they came up with the code of conduct. I think the code of conduct gave them a framework and then their personalities and uniquely that philosophical, that depth of philosophical stoicism for Admiral Stockdale and faith um, with uh, Reisner and Denton were were the magic mix um, that got him through it. Bud Day, um, my father, had very tough standards, I assure you, uh, despite how I've turned out. <laughs> and um, he, uh, uh, he respected no one more than Bud Day. And uh, I'll, other, uh, other than that, I'd just like to say, as Alvin added, a beautiful section uh, talking about other prisoners and other veterans, and I was so glad he did that. Uh, I hadn't seen that before, and uh, our family is acutely aware of the strange, name another war where a POW is one of the names that comes to your mind, right? It's a strange circumstance out of Vietnam, and as I've talked with Jeb Stewart about this, uh, Vietnam veterans don't even realize how, subdued, how suppressed uh, our adoration has been but it is there, certainly from our family, because we're acutely aware we got so much disproportionate attention, deserved, but disproportionate to what was deserved by so many others. We can cite chapter and verse about World War II, what unit they were in and where they were. Very few people in this room could do that about Vietnam. That's a disservice to them and, uh, and, a, and a sign that our respect needs to be uh, renewed in that area. I just wanted to make that comment. Thank you. And, and Mike, do you want to tell or do you want me to tell Sister Josephine story? I'll tell that one. All right. <laughs> Alvin had asked me what made him so tough. I went down to Williamsburg in Kings Mill where he was living. Uh, he has just passed away, but I want you to know that 30 days before he died, he played his last round of golf. He parred the last hole, number nine at Plantation, with a driver and a putter. <laughs> Anybody, if you ever do that with a driver and a putter on that hole over a gully, let me know. I'll buy you dinner. Uh, Alvin had called me. I, I literally... Uh, I asked, uh, I asked him, so, Dad, what made you so tough? And uh, he said, you know, and I said, well, he goes, what do you mean? I said, no, what, what drove you so much to, to 
be such a, a, a difficult resistor for them, and why were you so principled, etc.? And he gave me a broad answer, but with a very specific name. He looked at me like, I have just wasted all my time trying to teach you stuff, kid. He looked at me and he said, Sister Josephine. Um, and uh, the story of that is that Sister Josephine, he, he was caught. He took his whole high, uh, elementary school, like sixth grade class, out to play hooky. He convinced his entire class to play hooky. Now, they played hooky. I just visited this uh, at the event down in Mobile in the summer. It was only like two and a half blocks away. But the whole class filed out of St. Mary's and went down around the corner to some little culvert that was, you know, had this pipe underground under, under a road, and they thought it was mysterious. And so they all went there. Well, of course, he was caught. That, so he was caught twice uh, in Vietnam and by Sister Josephine. And... Um, <laughs> She brings him in, and Sister Josephine had the wisdom to sit him down, and instead of wailing on him, as would have normally been done in the Jesuit community down there, she, uh, she said, well, Jerry, you're obviously a leader if you can do this. And if you, you now, you have to decide what to do with that leadership. Thanks, Mike. You know, I think... One of the reasons we were, I was saying kind of mini-series versus a two-hour movie for this thing is, you know, your character, their character is forged so long ago, you know, and, and being able to communicate the story of why these guys were able to act the way they were, it's a long story that started a lot longer, you know, a lot longer, or much further back in history before they got shot down. You know, it's, it's their childhood, and, you know, so as, as we think about bringing up that next generation, you know, it's, it's a... And I hadn't had any kids yet, so we're, we're, we're working on that. But um, it's only been four months. But, uh, you know, it, it's, it's such an example for, I think, us to have, you know, people like the, these defiant POWs to, to emulate and try and figure out you know, what was it that made them able to act in this, in this, to be leaders in such a terrible situation. On the other side of the coin, have you had any contact with or knowledge of the Vietnamese captors? So two things. One, I was hoping you were going to ask about Jane Fonda because this is, this is the first audience that has not asked about Jane Fonda. I've been giving these speeches for six months. Um, so the, the, question, the question is um, the other side of the coin and what I've been able to find out about the Vietnamese. I have found Rabbit. So Colonel Yi, I have his email address. I know who he is. He's actually working for some really important children's causes in North Viet or in, in Vietnam now, and I'm still trying to meet with him. So, um, you know, I would I would love to be able to sit down with him and just kind of hear his side of the story and just and, and get to meet him. Uh, that hadn't happened yet, but I would I would like to do it. The Vietnamese government didn't particularly cooperate with this. Uh, when I was over there, though. Um, I worked with kind of some, some third parties that helped me get some good access to the prison and other things. Uh, but one day I do hope to get over there and uh, meet Rabbit. And if I do, I'm sure there'll be an article and uh, I'll let you know. But guys, th this, this has been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for having me up here.